Today on the Matt Wall Show, after our discussion yesterday about the masculinity crisis and Andrew Tate, I heard from many young men who told me that they have no choice but to give up on marriage and family and go their own way. But is this kind of surrender really the answer? No, definitely not. I'll explain why. Also, the Daily Wire report reveals the program by the Anti-Defamation League that's being used to politically indoctrinate children in Florida schools. Prescriptions for puberty blockers skyrocket over the, skyrocket over the last two years. A prominent Native American activist in Wisconsin turns out to be Native American in the same sense that Caitlyn Jenner is a woman. And in our daily cancellation, we'll deal with one of the newest trends on TikTok, stay-at-home girlfriends. All of that and more today on The Matt Wall Show. If you're someone who has always wanted to read and understand the Bible, but you're not sure where to start, then check out the Bible in a Year podcast from Ascension. The Bible in a Year podcast is currently the most popular religion podcast in the U.S. Millions of people have listened to it, and twice it's hit the number one spot on Apple Podcasts. In the Bible in a Year, Father Mike Schmitz reads the entire Bible in 365 daily episodes, providing helpful commentary, reflections, and prayers along the way. What better way to start the new year than this? You can find the Bible in a Year podcast with Father Mike Schmitz for free in your favorite podcast app or on YouTube. Plus, you can follow along with a special reading plan to help you better understand the story. Unlike any other Bible podcast, Bible in a Year follows a special reading plan that organizes the books of the Bible in a way that helps listeners understand the story. You can get this reading plan at ascensionpress.com Walsh. If you want to start reading and more importantly, understanding the Bible this year, go to ascensionpress.com Walsh to download the reading plan for free. That's ascensionpress.com Walsh to download the reading plan for free. We opened the show yesterday with a discussion about the crisis of masculinity and the rise of Andrew Tate. And to very briefly summarize the key points made in that conversation, boys are growing up in a culture that is openly hostile to masculinity, and many are forced to navigate the minefield without the benefits of strong male role models to show them the path. And this crisis is self-perpetuating. It grows exponentially because the young men with absentee fathers eventually become absentee fathers themselves, repeating the cycle indefinitely unto infinity. And into this field of confusion and man-hatred steps guys like Andrew Tate and others, quickly earning an enormous following of young men who understandably flock to somebody who has a message that embraces masculinity rather than treating it like a disease. Andrew Tate, very often good at identifying the problems in our culture as they pertain to the situation that men face, and deserves credit for speaking up in defense of masculinity rather than denigrating it and calling for its eradication, essentially. But in my view, he misses the mark when it comes to the remedy. He seems to basically understand the disease, but he doesn't have the right prescription for it, or at least the full prescription. Yes, men should reject the programming that our culture wants to subject them to, uh, programming which seeks to neuter and feminize them. Yes, they should work hard. They should take care of their minds and their bodies. Yes, they should strive for success, including financial success. But a life of hedonism and materialism and luxurious wealth remaining unmarried while sleeping with a dozens of different women and so on is not the ideal to strive towards. Rather, what men are called to and created for and the only sort of life that will be truly happy, that they'll find true happiness and joy in, is a life of service as protector and provider. Men, the vast majority of men anyway, are called to be husbands and fathers, to be leaders of their families. Now, they may be called to lead in other ways too, but first they must care for their families. If there's any saving our civilization at this point, which I think there is, but if there is, this is how it will be done. And this is who will do it. It's not going to be saved by influencers who are sitting in front of cameras, whether the guy in front of the camera is Andrew Tate or me or anyone else. It'll be saved through the formation and preservation of strong, intact loving, and well-led families. That is the only way. It is the only way forward. If every man in the country starts going to the gym and starts making lots of money and starts having sex with lots of attractive women, and yet they don't get married and stay married and have children and raise and love those children, then we will still be headed to ruin. It'll be a slightly different kind of ruin, but ruin all the same. Those men themselves will ultimately find the happiness that, uh, that they are able to derive in that lifestyle. They'll find that it's shallow and it's fleeting. And in the end, they'll die alone, loved by no one, loving no one, remembered by no one, leaving no legacy behind. 
the feminized and neutered and effeminate man that our left-wing culture seeks to create, and then this other sort of man, both unmarried, both childless, will look very similar in the end, having taken two very different paths just to arrive together at essentially the same place. It's the family man, the devoted father and husband, whose different path actually leads to a different and much better conclusion. Now, I've, of course, been preaching this message for as long as I've had an audience to preach to, and I have uh, found that there are like two or three basic responses or rebuttals, I guess, that I always hear from young men who, who may, for the most part, line up with me ideologically, but who doubt the wisdom of the get married and have kids prescription. And I was uh, greeted with these same responses after the show yesterday and many messages and comments. What I'd like to do today is answer the objections, or at least what seems to be the one principal objection. The claim that I so often hear is that, well, marriage and family life is a trap. It's a scam, especially for men. The whole thing is rigged against us. There is nothing for a man to do but give up on the entire enterprise and, and go his own way. In fact, there's a whole movement online. Men go their own way. And that's basically the idea. Just give up on this stuff and, and do something else. This argument was summarized in a comment from a listener named Joshua, which I'll read because I think it just is representative of, of this sort of mentality. He says, still sounds like Matt and most Tradcon's definition of what masculinity means is exclusively through the lens of women and children's wants and needs. Unfortunately, that ideal will no longer work in the modern world with birth control, hookup culture, social media, and court systems that favor women and the denigration of traditional masculinity. I don't agree with all of Tate's views, but it sure beats Matt's prescriptions for young men. Again, I've read a great many comments making the same kind of point. A private message from another listener has a similar theme. It says, Matt, I agree with many of your opinions, but your message to men is off base. Young men follow Andrew Tate because his lifestyle is the ideal, whether you admit it or not. Wealth, fame, status, beautiful women were biologically programmed to want those things. Marriage is a losing game. The only solution in modern society is to reject the life of service, as you call it. So what is the problem with uh, this view? Well, to begin with, it's nothing less than a full, unconditional surrender to the culture. It's true that the culture has increasingly made it difficult for both men and women to form and maintain strong, intact lasting families. And that's because the elites who run our society don't want you to live that kind of life. They prefer that you focus on your individual wants, on fulfilling your own needs and, and satisfying your own desires. That's what they prefer for you. That's the life they want for you. A self-focused life is precisely the sort of life they wish for you. Makes you easier to manipulate less of a threat to their agenda. Not really a threat at all. I mean, if you're just out there focused on yourself, um, you know, being a consumer, buying lots of things for yourself, consuming things for yourself, um, you know, uh, and all the rest of it, you're not a threat to, to, to their agenda at all. I mean, you're, you're going along with it. Um, all of the things mentioned by Joshua in his comment. All of those things represent a conspiracy against the family. He's right about that. The way the family court systems are set up, birth control, all the rest of it. It's an attack on the family. So what is the answer? To give up? To give the conspirators exactly what they want? To reward them for their efforts by turning your back on the very thing they've been assaulting for decades? The family is the fortress that they have been attacking. And you can defend it with your life, or you can wave the white flag. But if you choose to surrender, then at least be honest about what you're doing. Be honest. This is not a rejection of the left's agenda, of a cultural elite's agenda. You are, you are submitting to it. It is a submission. It is certainly not the strong or masculine response to run away and abandon your post to stop fighting because the fight is too difficult. I mean, that approach is many things, but it certainly isn't manly. And where do you go instead? I mean, what is the next move? To give up on the family is to give up on human civilization, seeing as how there cannot be a human civilization without the family. So, 
Uh, what's plan B after you've given up on civilization? Where, what's next? You're also giving up on yourself, on your own legacy, your own bloodline. You're, you are descended from a long line of men stretching back thousands of years who formed families and raised children, often under circumstances far more dire than what we face. And you're giving up on them too. You're, you're, you, you are surrendering your future and your past. You're giving up on everything. And what is your consolation prize? Finding financial success? I mean, the unfortunate irony is that many of the people that, many of the men who uh, give up on these things in, in favor of, well, I'll just focus on myself and try to be financially successful, many of them are never even going to be financial, financially successful. So they end up with just nothing. They end up broke and alone with nothing. But even if you find it, the financial success, so what? I mean, who cares about money if you have nothing meaningful to spend it on? I have money. I don't have Andrew Tate's money, but I have money. And nearly all the joy and happiness I derive from having money is that it allows me to provide for my family. That's pretty much it. That's the entire thing. That's why I, I like having the money. Is that I find great pleasure in being able to care for a wife and six kids. Proud of that fact. If I didn't have them, the money would mean very little to me. I mean, I could buy nice things and drive a fancy car and live in my nice house alone. But for what? Now, does that mean that if you start a family that you're guaranteed to live a joyful and fulfilled life? Well, of course not. It's a risk. And yes, the risks are in some ways much greater in modern times. We have all been poisoned by this demonic culture to one extent or another. We are all poisoned. If you marry someone, you are marrying someone who has been poisoned, who has ingested the poison, who has uh, you know, had taken a drink from the well of modern culture. Everybody has, as have you. And yes, if things go sideways, if you're a man, you marry a woman and, and your wife turns out to be a disloyal vulture, or if you turn out to be a disloyal vulture, or you both do, um, the deck will be stacked against you in court. No, no, there's no question about that. Divorce may ruin your life. And you know, if you give your heart to someone, if you bind yourself to them, not only through the marriage vow, but then also through children you conceive together, then you will have, they will have all they need to rip your guts out and burn your life to the ground. That is absolutely true. That's the risk, okay? But it's a risk worth taking. Every great joy can become a great tragedy if you aren't careful. Or if you have very bad luck. That's true. So is the answer then to forego all joy? To say forget about joy because it might not work out? To embrace a life of loneliness and misery because you're worried that if you aim higher, you'll end up lonely and miserable? You're worried that in the end you'll end up in this state, so instead you say, well, I might as well just live in this state to begin with. Doesn't make any sense. So you take the risk, and you mitigate the risk at the same time by being smart about who you marry and by grounding your marriage and, and your family in faith and mutual devotion, and by working hard every day to hold up your own end of the bargain because yeah, there are some men out there who do everything right, and they're and 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 you know they're great men, and they're devoted to their families, and they're intensely loyal, and all of that, and their families fall apart anyway because they accidentally married a soulless, disloyal scumbag. I mean, that does happen, and sometimes it happens in the reverse. But that's not that's not the majority of cases. Most of the time, it takes two to tango, two to get married, two to ruin the marriage. Which means that marriage is not a mere roll of the dice. There's quite a lot you can do to secure your good fortune. That's why I never cared about the statistics. You know, when I get, was getting married and I heard about this, statistically, this is, I'm not a statistic. I'm not just some number on a spreadsheet. And neither is my wife. We're human beings. I, I, I'm not subject to statistics. Not merely subject to them. Because the one thing statistics don't take into account are choices. 
It's about the choices you make. Whether your marriage works or not, it's about choices that are made in the marriage. If one or both of you make bad choices, your, your, your chances are going to be very poor. If you make good choices, they won't be. That's what it is. And yet the risk is always there. So will you live in fear of it? Or will you have the courage? And go forward anyway. One other thing I want to say, you know, I, I, it, and this is important to, to say that it's just not true. Okay, it's just not true that a life of obscene luxury and materialism and selfishness and self-service and of, you know, sleeping with many different women and, and, and all of that, it's not true that that is the ideal, which we so often hear these days. That's the ideal. You know, non-monogamy, having many sexual partners, that is, that, that, that's the ideal, they say. That's not true. Much less is it, is it what we are biologically programmed to desire. No, it's what we're culturally programmed to desire. That is the cultural programming. But I know that it's not biological because I'm a biological organism and I don't desire that. I don't want any life but the one I have. I don't want any woman but the one I married. I mean, you could listen to that and say, oh, that's not true. He's just saying it. That's a cope on your part. That's resentment, envy, talking. If I could do my life over from the start, I would find my wife again and marry her again. If I lived a hundred lives, I'd marry her in all of them. That's what it means to love somebody. And love is the ideal. Because it's not mere biological programming. It is transcendent. And trust me, it's well worth the risk. Now let's get to our headlines. You know how I feel about New Year's resolutions. You set out with lofty goals, stick to them for two weeks, then fall right back into your old habits. Well, lucky for you, I have a goal that you can accomplish today. Complete your will with Epic Will. For just 119 bucks and in as little as five minutes, Epic Will can help you create your last will and testament, your living will, even healthcare power of attorney. Their step-by-step online form makes it incredibly easy. All you got to do is fill in the blanks. Uh, 50% of Americans don't have a will. Well, you can choose today to be in the smarter half, but you got to go to epicwill.com. Use promo code Walsh to save 10% on Epic Will's package. That's the epicwill.com, promo code Walsh. All right, we begin with this headline from uh, the Daily Wire. After DeSantis says Florida is where woke goes to die, Broward Schools Inc. contract with radical left group. This is the article from Luke Rosiak. says, a month after Republican governor... Ron DeSantis won a resounding re-election victory and declared that the state is where woke goes to die. The state's second largest school system signed a contract with an infamous peddler of woke partisanship for children. On December 13th, the Broward County School Board approved a contract with the Anti-Defamation League, otherwise known as ADL. The contract managed by the school district's Department of Diversity and School Climate expands an existing program already present in 70 of its schools called No Place for Hate, which proclaims Move on from kindness. Schools need to foster social justice. Wait a second. Move on from kindness. Schools need to foster social justice. So we don't want to be kind anymore. Kindness, that's old news. We're moving on from kindness, and instead we have social justice. Because, of course, I guess what they're admitting here is that social justice has nothing to do with kindness. certainly has nothing to do with love or being, you know, anti-hate or anything. Um, the move calls for training select student leaders of No Place for Hate under ADL's A World of Difference program. The contract says that, that ADL will cover the cost of training. A document for A World of Difference calls for preschoolers to learn to take a stand. No Place for Hate's Coordinator Handbook and Resource Guide in 20, for uh, 2020 to 2021 calls to get them involved in action, advocacy, and or activism. In order to affect systemic change, students need to analyze and challenge the opportunity achievement gap, school funding inequities, and the school-to-prison pipeline. Okay, so these are public schools that are focused now on getting kids, including preschoolers, involved in activism. Uh, Let's see, it goes on. People of color and or those who are members of marginalized groups may want to share real and sometimes harsh testimonies about their experiences 
They may want to caucus with others in their same identity group in order to feel safe. Or they may feel that being able to challenge others' bias is what is necessary to build empathy. Different perspectives may be attributed to, uh, to whether one is part of a marginalized or majority group in school or society. If you know students' correct pronouns and names, use them in class and do not rely on official or roster information. No Place for Hate's website lists as a resource um, ADL lesson plans, free and pre-assembled, attracting teachers who want to save the work of creating their own plans, which push naked partisanship on children. One titled Georgia's Restrictive Voting Law states that, quote, in March 2021, the Georgia state legislature passed a major law that restricts and suppresses voting across the state. It encourages students to plan actions they can take to influence powerful entities to take a stand about social justice issues. Um, and then many, many similar things like this. So this is still going on in the school system, second largest school system in, in, uh, in Florida. And this is still happening there even after, um, even after we're told that, you know, woke goes to die in Florida. So this is something that Ron DeSantis needs to pay attention to needs to work towards doing something about this. Um, even just the, the fact that there's a, what was it? What, what was their exact phrasing? And every school has a different phrase. Is different. Department of Diversity and School Climate. Well, that shouldn't exist in any school. There should be any Department of Diversity. If they've got anything like that, you know from the start that this is a mechanism to ideologically indoctrinate students. And so they should begin by getting rid of all of those. Every department of diversity in any school needs to be gone. And it also goes to show that the parental rights bill, which was uh, inappropriately named, misnamed the don't say gay bill, that has to be just the beginning. You know, that can't be the whole story. Um, even that bill, you know, I, I supported that bill. It was a good bill. It was a good law. Better than the alternative. The alternative was nothing. But that bill was specifically focused on protecting kids from sexual indoctrination from pre-K up to third grade. Which is, which is great to protect them from that. But then now we've got all the students who are in fourth grade and higher. Got to protect them too. And there are other forms of indoctrination also. So pushing preschoolers to get involved in left-wing activism, having these blatantly partisan you know, uh, uh, lessons about voting laws and, and how voter ID counts as voter suppression, well, that's not sexual indoctrination, but that is, that is a political and ideological indoctrination. So that needs to go out the window also. And this is where... You know, as I always say, when it comes to the, the, most politicians, I don't support at all. I don't trust most of them. And the, on the rare occasion that I find a politician who I will say I support, the support is always tentative. And I'm willing to I'm willing to withdraw it at any moment. It's like they have to continue to earn it. That's that's I think that's the attitude we should all have towards politicians. And that means it's not like you earn it and then you skate on that for the next decade. You got to continue to earn it. Which means, even as someone who supports Ron DeSantis, especially someone who supports Ron DeSantis, I'm looking at this and saying, well, okay, let's see what he does next. Because it can't, that's, a, that's a great bill. Glad it was passed. And now what's next? We've got all these other kids we need to protect, all these other forms of indoctrination. Um, let's do that next. And I think he will. I hope he will. Uh, but really, the other thing that we I think we could take from this is that there shouldn't be, you know, anytime you hear about discussions of hate in the schools, it's not what this is supposed to be. Taking a stand against hate, no place for hate. It's actually not the school's job to tell kids what they should or shouldn't hate. There actually should not be any conversations in the school system um, about hatred. We don't need the government employees who are running the school system to facilitate these conversations with kids about hatred. That's not your job. None of this is your job. Pushing them to activism, to getting, in, to getting involved in social movements, none of that is your job. 
Your job is to teach the academic subjects, and that's it. All the rest of this is moral formation, and that's not your job. That's not why anyone is actually sending their kids to the public school system. And the reason why I'm not going to trust a school system with moral formation is that I, 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 don't, I don't agree with or trust their moral viewpoints. What they consider moral formation is, is really moral deformation. And when it comes to hate, I certainly am not going to trust the schools to tell my kids what is appropriate hate and what is and what they should and shouldn't be hating. Because guess what? Not all hate is bad. Everyone actually agrees with that. As much as they tell us, oh, there's, there's no place for hate. No, that's not true. There's always a place for hate. Even they would say that. I'm sure they would say, tell us that we should hate racism. I'm sure they would tell us that we should hate, utterly, fundamentally reject, you know, intolerance. Well, no, they wouldn't tell us to fundamentally reject either of those things because they're in favor of some forms of racism. But, but that's what they would say. If, I, if, I, if you were to ask them, even the ones who, are, who put together this No Place for Hate program, if you were to ask them, well, you know, what about, is, is racism a detestable thing? They would say, well, absolutely. Okay, we should, we should, so we should detest racism. We should hate it. Okay, well, so there is a place for hatred, actually. There are things that are worthy of hatred. It's just a matter of what are those things? That's, about, that's a value system judgment. And um, I don't trust the school system's value system. All right. Speaking of things we should hate, here's a report from the uh, gay groomer site Pink News about child drag queens. And there's a lot going on in this brief clip that we'll play that they tell us is just is not real. It's all misinformation. And yet here it is in their video. This is not my, I didn't, I didn't put this video together. This is their video. And uh, let's watch. Meet Australia's youngest drag queen, 13-year-old Candy Featherbottom, also known as Logan out of drag. Hi, everybody. I'm Candy Featherbottom. And 15-year-old Queen Cherry West from Edinburgh, Scotland, also known as Sam Carling out of drag. Hello, dear. I am Cherry West, the Red Berry Venera, and I am a 15-year-old drag queen. Though from different parts of the world, these queens have more than just their young age in common, but their passion for all things drag. Candy's love and passion for singing and performing came from watching a family-friendly performance at the local bowls club by group Taboo and led to her drag debut at the North Ipswich Bowls Club in Brisbane at just 10 years old. Getting up on a stage and, you know, bringing that smiles to those people's faces is why I do it. And Cherry's inspiration came from watching her drag icon, Bianca Del Rio. A queen that inspired me quite a lot was Bianca Del Rio from season six of Drag Race. Um, I recently seen her in Edinburgh performing and she's absolutely incredible. I'm obsessed with her. The Trailblazers are challenging perceptions on young queens through not only their stellar performances, but through speaking up for all of the kids finding out who they are. Well, there you go. Perfect example of uh, what we just talked about. There are some things worthy of hatred. Not hating the kids. It's not their fault. They're victims. This is, this is sexual abuse. They are sexual abuse victims. We don't hate them. We hate what's being done to them. That's what we hate. And you hear it right there in the video. I mean, this is, this is grooming. And that's, that's why we're, they don't want us to, it's like they've banned the word and it's this horrible slur because it's true. That's why we're not allowed to say it. Anything you're not allowed to say these days is because it's true. You even hear the kids say it. They, they say that, well, I, you know, I, I saw a drag when I was 10 years old and that's what made me decide I wanted to get into drag. That's grooming. That's indoctrination. That's exactly why they want to expose the kids to this kind of stuff, so that the kids will emulate it. Because children are impressionable. And if you put something in front of their faces and say, this is cool, this is what you should be doing, they're very likely to listen to that. So this is, uh, this is exactly the point. It is full-on grooming and, uh, and sexual abuse. Not all that different from, you know, what is it, uh, the in Afghanistan, the uh, uh, Taliban, Bakabazi, I think they call it. Very similar thing. They take adolescent boys, dress them up like girls, have them dance around for the, for the uh, as a spectacle for grown pervert men who sit there and watch it. Similar idea, a little bit of a different, you know, 
different words, different, uh, it's, it's, it's cloaked in a, in a kind of a different way, but very similar idea. Well, here's a very brief TikTok from, a, this is a therapist here in Nashville, and a the therapist is named Bailey Joe Carter. And it's like six seconds long and there's no audio in it, but here she is bragging about using suicide threats to manipulate parents. Go ahead and watch this real quick. All eyes on me. Horrified looks from everyone in the room. A client's mom and said, do you want a transgender kid or a dead kid? So this is her saying this is what she says to parents. Do you want a trans kid or a dead kid? Um, And this is, of course, what therapists and counselors have been saying to parents for many years now. To manipulate them, it's emotional blackmail, to get them to go along with um, the gender transition. And it's especially when, I mean, this is, this is uh, horrifically evil. They know exactly what they're doing. Also, keep, keep in mind something here, that you know, very often when the therapists say this to the parents, when the parents go to the therapist, they bring the kid in, uh, as they say, the child's struggling with gender dysphoria, feels not at home in his own body, whatever it is. Um, very often, and there are plenty of parents that will tell you this if you talk to them, the therapist will bring up suicide as a possibility, even if the child never mentioned anything about suicidal thoughts. It's the therapist and the counselors who will introduce this idea to the parent and the child. But even if the child had brought it up, you know, even, even if the, the child who was struggling with this gender confusion had already on his own or on her own brought up these suicidal thoughts, that still would not make this okay at all for the therapist to take this approach. Because why are the children suicidal? Why are they, you know, if you're suicidal, you're in a state of despair. Every single suicidal person, that's ultimately what what brings about the suicide is a state of despair. And what are they despairing over? What's the source of that despair? It's because they, they, they you know, are, are unable to accept themselves for who they actually are. You know, they feel like there's something wrong with their body, something wrong with them in a, in a way that can never be fixed. They feel not at home in their own bodies. And it's quite easy to see how that would bring about feelings of despair. So what's the, what's the solution then? Uh, the solution is to help them to accept themselves for who they are. And what, one of the things that makes this so infuriating is just how easy it would be in so many of these cases. Every once in a while, you have a kid where the gender confusion, gender dysphoria is, is much more deeply seated. And it, would take a, and it takes a lot longer to um, help them navigate their way through it, to treat it. It could still be done, though. I mean, there's, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter how deep it is. There's never a time when you should just give into it and say, okay, well, if you feel like you're this other gender, then you must be. That's never the solution. It's never the right thing. But, you know, with so many of these kids, it's, it's not that deeply seated. All they need is just a little bit of clarity. If they had a little bit of clarity, that's all they would need, and they'd get over it. For many of these kids, it's, it's a very surface level, level thing. And you shed a little bit of light, give them a little bit of guidance. For many of these kids, you know, in the beginning, all they need to hear is from an adult they trust. If you've got a boy who thinks he's a girl or is saying that, all he needs to hear from some adult he trusts is, no, you're a boy. It's a, it's a good thing to be a boy. It's wonderful to be who you are. Uh, that you, you should embrace that and accept that. That's all he needs to hear. But he doesn't. And so what starts as this kind of surface level confusion eventually becomes much more deeply seated. Uh, and this also sheds some light on this report from the Post Millennial. says, the number of American children being treated for gender dysphoria has risen sharply in recent years with prescriptions for puberty blockers doubling 
between 2017 and 2021. According to the Daily Mail, the data comes from health insurance reports, meaning the actual numbers are likely to be much higher due to the number of patients paying out of pocket for the experimental and harmful treatments. The meteoric rise in American doctors attempting to perform sex changes on minors has occurred while other nations are starting to move away from affirmation and puberty suppression and back to a more cautious psychotherapeutic approach to this for those uh, for this vulnerable cohort of young people, Sweden, Finland, England, France, New Zealand, have all recently abandoned the affirmative model of care due to concerns that the risks far outweigh the benefits. The Daily Mail took data collected by Komodo Health, an analytics company that monitors health insurance claims, and created graphs showing this explosion in young people being diagnosed and treated for gender dysphoria. Um, the data shows that prescriptions for puberty blockers for those aged 6 to 17 leapt from 633 in 2017 to 1,390 in 2021. These drugs were once thought to be a fully reversible pause to give a child more time to figure out their identity, but recent studies have shown that almost, almost every child put on puberty blockers goes on to take cross-sex hormones, meaning the drugs make further uh, medical transition almost a foregone conclusion. According to a Daily Mail report, the number of insurance claims for young people taking cross-sex hormones soared from uh, a little under 2,000 in 2017 to 4,231 in 2021. So you're seeing a doubling. And this again, you know, anytime you see numbers like this, it's always going to be an undercount. For the reasons that they say in the post-millennial report, but also because, you know, the, the, the people that we're relying on for this information have every incentive to under to give you an undercount. The people in the health industry, the pharmaceutical industry, it doesn't do them any good to actually give us the real numbers. Because the more we see that, and we see this explosion, um, the more it makes people kind of recoil and say, well, what the heck's going on here? You see a doubling, a tripling, whatever, quadrupling. That makes even people who have been totally oblivious to this point, they sit up, they take notice, and they say, what? Wait, why is that happening? And that's exactly the question that the medical industry doesn't want you to ask. So even with this undercount, even coming from sources that are biased in the other direction, you can still see the, the social contagion very clearly in action. All right, here's a headline from Madison 365. Um, actually, I won't tell you the headline yet. I'm going to read from the article a little bit, and you can tell me if, if you see where this is going. Okay, if you're very insightful and you've been paying attention, you might, you might pick up on this. You might, you might guess the twist ending before we even get to it. Early in 2020, an indigenous artist urged the owners of a new music venue in town to change its name. It was called the Winnebago, after the street on which it stands, many indigenous people and allies let the owners know that uh, that wasn't the best name for a white-owned music venue. One of them was, oh, great. Okay, here's the name this person was going by. It's going to take me a second. Nibiwakamigwe. 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 Okay, that's the name that she was going by. Also known as Kay LeClaire. That's actually her name a founding member and co-owner of the Queer Indigenous Artists Collective and a budding leader of Madison's Indigenous Arts community. It took several months, but the venue eventually relented and rebranded as the Burr Oak. LeClaire wrote an editorial for Our Lives Wisconsin at the time, I'm glad the owners have decided to no longer profit from the identities of Indigenous people. I'm glad the name is going, but I'm not happy that the institutions that allowed it to be stolen in the first place remain. For over 500 years, indigenous peoples have not controlled our narratives and representations. Our exclusion has been built into inclusion for others. One problem with that narrative, this is the part you've already guessed, LeClaire wasn't indigenous and was in fact profiting from the identities of indigenous peoples herself. So since at least 2017, Kay LeClaire has claimed Metis Oneida, uh, Cuban and Jewish heritage, along with a couple other indigenous cultures that I'm not even going to try to pronounce. Additionally, they identify as two-spirit, a term many indigenous people use to describe a non-binary gender identity. Actually, almost no indigenous people use that term, but whatever. In addition to becoming a member of a, a, and co-owner of this arts collective, Leclerc earns several artist stipends, a paid residency at the University of Wisconsin, a place on the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women Task Force, 
and many speaking gigs and art, art exhibitions, not to mention a platform and trust of the community. Um, and this all, in spite of the fact that this person apparently, and then it's a very long story that goes on from there, but apparently this person invented the entire uh, indigenous persona, and this is, you know, a white person, has no real indigenous blood. So, same story we've seen many times. It's actually interesting because in this article from Madison 365, which is the, the local Wisconsin uh, news outlet, they still refer to Kay LeClaire as they, so they respect the they pronoun because, you know, she identifies as two-spirit which supposedly is the indigenous or Native American version of trans or non-binary, which as I've told you before, it's not. That's a, that's a two-spirit is a, is a term invented by gay activists in 1990. Okay? It's, not, it's not something that goes back um, into the ancient past. All right? it's, not like, it's not like the, the Mayans were identifying themselves as two-spirit. But so they're still, this is the funny thing about it, they're still respecting that. So it's clear that she lied about her whole identity. She's, she's come up with multiple false identities She's Cuban one minute, she's Jewish the next, she's indigenous this, she belongs to this tribe, that tribe, and uh, all that is fake, but they're still respecting the gender identity and refer, because that couldn't possibly be fake, right? And so they're still going to refer to her as they. But, you know, it's, it's the same story we've seen so many times. That's why you could guess the ending before we even got there. Uh, people, white, white people, and it's, it's, you know, it is interesting that it's so often white women in particular. It's not, it's not that men never do this, but it's, it is very often white women who um, invent this minority identification for themselves, which is very fascinating. Because if we indeed, of course, lived in a society with systemic racism and systemic uh, oppression of these various groups, then why would you have so many people who are in the group in power clamoring to get to, to be identified with the persecuted group. There is no precedent for that in history. There's plenty of precedent for actually persecuted groups in a society. But what you find is that if you go back to you know, any historical precedent of a, of, a, of a persecuted group, you don't have people in the, in the powerful group trying to falsely identify themselves as members of the persecuted group. It usually goes the other way, where people in the persecuted group are trying to claim identity outside of that group so they aren't persecuted. The fact that this is happening is pretty good evidence that the persecution is all, uh, is all fake. Finally, you know, I can't neglect to, to mention that today is January 6, 2023, and uh, that should have been the number one headline. I apologize. It's the two-year two year anniversary of... Um, January 6, 2021. And that is a day that will live forever in our memory as a day that came right before January 7, 2021. And even right after January 5, 2021. These were all days. That was a day. Today is a day. And that's all that needs to be said about it. Let's get to the comment section. If you own a business, the past few years have been, to say the least, a bumpy ride from COVID lockdowns to Biden inflation. You could probably use a break and innovation refunds can help you with that. If your business has five or more employees and managed to survive COVID, you could be eligible to receive a payroll tax rebate of up to $26,000 per employee. That isn't a loan. There's no payback. It's a refund of your taxes. The challenge is getting your hands on it. How do you cut through the red tape and get your business the refund money that you're owed? Well, you got to go to getrefunds.com. Their team of tax attorneys are highly trained in this little-known payroll tax refund program and have already returned $1 billion to businesses, and they can help you too. They do all the work with uh, no charge up front, and they simply share a percentage of the cash that they get for you. Businesses of all types can qualify, including those who uh, took uh, PPP, nonprofits, and even those that had increases in sales but you got to go to the website, go to getrefunds.com, click on qualify me and answer a few questions. This payroll tax refund is only available for a limited amount of time. Don't miss out. Go to getrefunds.com. That's getrefunds.com. Cultured Anime says, we live in a world where Tate gets arrested before anyone of Je Jeffrey Epstein's clients do. Uh, right. And that's, and that's a 
perfectly good and valid point, and I've heard a lot of people bringing that up, and for good reason, because I mean, well, well, whether Andrew Tate is arrested or not, um, the the it's it remains outrageous that um, that you know they arrested and then allegedly had this uh, you know global sex, sex trafficker who was you know. Uh, associated with all these very prominent people, uh, kill himself, even though he didn't really kill himself, and yet, and that's the end of it. Like, we haven't heard anything else about, well, what, what, what about all these people that he was, was associated with? So apparently, it's very, it's very interesting that he's a, a global sex trafficker, pedophile, pimp, uh, Jeffrey Epstein, and yet he had, apparently he had no clients millions and millions of dollars and there were, but he didn't have, there was nobody is what we're supposed to believe. Um, and as far as Andrew Tate goes, as I said, I, I have no idea if he's innocent or guilty. That's, that's something that has to be proven in a court of law. And if they prove it, they prove it. Um, Harry Lagman says, fantastic. I was confident you'd get it right about Andrew Tate. Both the good sides, the less good, and the reasons men like him are the unsurprising product of a society that is hostile to boys and men, telling them to be more like women. As you say, it's not just the lack of role models, much that uh, gives boys and men strength that is attacked. I'm thinking specifically of patriotism, the identity with with, with one's country, and the wish to excel at any job, sport, or skill, but also the role as a father. Fathers have been undermined to a disastrous extent by the law. Any father, if he doesn't know it already, discovers this sooner or later, sometimes very painfully, and uh, it's not getting any better. Yeah, I, I agree with you, as we said in the opening, that the deck, legally, the deck is stacked against husbands and fathers, stacked against men and family court and all the rest of it. Um, that's true. But, as I said, if we, if we respond to that by just abandoning ship, then we have given the other side everything they want. There's a re- that's the whole reason that they rig it in this way, is that they want us to give up on the family. Because you have to remember that the cultural elites and the left generally, they consider the family, especially a so-called, quote-unquote, traditional family, led by a man, a father, and a husband, they consider that the enemy. And so... If you abandon it, then you are doing exactly what they want you to do. They see every man says going his own way and is giving up on this, and they say, "Yep, thank you. It's exactly what we want." Uh, Hoosier Flatty says, "Are you willing to reassess your worldview that the Earth is a moving oblate spheroid?" Well, I'd have to know what oblate spheroid means to reassess it, but if you mean that if I'm willing to reassess my worldview that the world itself is round. Uh, the answer is, is uh, sure, yeah. They pr- present the evidence to me. If you could actually present real evidence that the earth is, is actually flat, it's been everything I think about the world is wrong, um, I'd be fascinated. Just go ahead, uh, tell me what the evidence is. It's just that it doesn't exist. So that's the only problem. Um, not, look, I'm, I'm willing to read evidence on about anything. Yeah, if you have actual evidence that the entire that we're living in a simulation and nothing of none of this is real and we're all just like brains in a vat hooked up by wires to some matrix-like thing, if you have evidence of that, I'd be I'd be fascinated to know. And it'd be great to know because then I could t- tell everyone on my podcast, and that would get a lot of views in the simulation. Um, Another comment says, it's frustrating to see someone like Matt point out that the world is shitting on men and then have him shit on some of the men in children's lives, lump on a log, without bothering to point out the direct cause of these issues. The mother. I'm so sick of the discussion around men and who and what they should be tiptoeing around the disastrous choices that the women in their lives, be it a mother, girlfriend, wife, or peer, make. Stop blaming men. Okay, well, you seem to be suggesting Now, I agree that we shouldn't blame men for everything, and we shouldn't just only blame men. In other words, like our message to men should not be one solely of blame. We agree on that. But you're going to the extreme other end of this and saying that we should never blame men for anything, which of course is ridiculous. What you're actually claiming here is, hey, I, I mentioned that there are absentee fathers, 
And then there are also plenty of fathers who are physically present in the home, but are lumps on a log. They're not, they're not present in any other way. They're not actually leading their families. That is a real thing. That exists. And what you're saying is that in every single one of those cases, it's not the man's fault. It's actually the woman's fault. Do you understand how childish and ludicrous that is? Yeah, we don't want to blame men, but don't infantilize them either. Nothing is our fault. I'm a victim of everything. So even if you're a man who chooses to just sit on your ass and play video games all day and do nothing, and you, you have kids and you let your wife do everything and you do nothing, that's not, it's not my fault as you're playing the video game. I can't help it. Oh, please. You know what? Infantilizing men in that way is even worse than blaming them. Okay, heaping scorn and blame on men is really, really bad. Even worse is infantilizing them. Because at least if, if, you, if you point a finger of blame at men and you say, like, at least that might motivate. There are plenty of men who that's, they end up being demoralized and all the rest of it by it. But uh, it could also go the other way. See, for me, when I hear that message from society, it's motivating. It doesn't motivate me in the way that society wants to motivate me. But yeah, it makes me kind of angry. And that anger sort of like fuels me to, to succeed all the more. So it can have that effect. But infantilization, that's just, that, that, it would, if, if men listen to that, they just become helpless babies. Victims. Okay, you never want to be a victim. Even when you are a victim, you shouldn't see yourself as a victim. 2022 was an incredible year filled with many accomplishments, including the release of my smash hit documentary, What is a Woman? The rally to end child mutilation, which resulted in Vanderbilt University Medical Center pausing their gender-affirming surgeries on minors, so-called. And I even became 2022's transphobe of the year. And uh, that was a great honor. And all this is, is really all well and good, but we're just getting started. Ring in 2023 with the latest installment of my patch program, which is the Sweet Baby New Year patch. It's a beacon for the strides against the left that we're going to make and the ground we're going to retake. New year, same SBG. It'll sell out fast, so you got to go to dailywire.com shop today. Also, last year, Jordan Peterson joined Daily Wire Plus, and since then, he's put out a ton of inspiring and informative content. He started with Dragons, Monsters, and Men, and then uh, has also his uh, series On Marriage, and has followed up with Logos and Literacy, and then his new biblical series, Exodus, which is available to watch right now. So far, my favorite was on marriage as we drift further away from traditional values. It's no secret that we're becoming more and more lost as we drift away from traditional values. A lot of this has to do with men refusing to grow up and people refusing to enter into marriages like we've talked about so often on this show. J Jordan does a fantastic job of explaining why marriage is not only preferable, but it's really our true calling in life. There's only one place where you can watch this and all of Jordan Peterson's exclusive content, and that's on Daily Wire Plus. So head to dailywire.com slash Walsh to become a member and watch all of this and more. That's dailywire.com slash Walsh today. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. Over the last few months, yet another popular new trend has been gaining steam on TikTok, uh, though I didn't hear about it until yesterday when I saw an interesting video that conservative commentator Lauren Chen had made on the subject. Now, it's strange that um, I would be so behind the curve on this, because as you all know, I'm, I'm usually very plugged in. I'm very with it, up to date on all the trends. I think I'm known that way. In any case, this fashionable new trend is called the stay-at-home girlfriend. There's a BuzzFeed article explains what it's all about though perhaps it's rather self-explanatory. This is what it says. The day-to-day -day life of Kendall Kay, one of TikTok's maligned stay-at-home girlfriends, appears in her viral videos to be, well, fairly dull. We're jealous. Her glamorous non-employment non doesn't seem to entail much more than journaling, preparing healthy snacks, and seeing an occasional butterfly. On Twitter, people say that she seems like she has been lobotomized, highly medicated, or generally unfulfilled. Her meticulous self-care and fitness routines, a symptom of the spreading that girl aesthetic, have been compared to that of American Psycho's serial killer Patrick Bateman. Parody videos abound. But her slow, soft life resonated with many. Instead of criticizing her lack of a nine-to-five, they related to the dream of one day being rich enough to have a do-nothing job. We've long been on the verge of a hustle culture reckoning, and Kay is one post away from leading the revolution. Is it possible some of these critics were just jealous too? Now, there are apparently many videos on TikTok of these stay-at-home girlfriends showing what their sort of day-to-day -day life is like. Um, here's a sampling from the TikToker mentioned in that article. Here it is. 
This is my day in the life as a stay-at-home girlfriend. I'm currently in Vancouver, so I'm in a new house, which is so fun. And the first thing I do is take my aloe shot. I love having this on an empty stomach. And I take my greens. Then I get straight to making Luke's coffee because he's definitely a caffeine first thing in the morning kind of guy. I am adding some honey and cream and I made these cookies yesterday so I'm going to give him a couple of those to eat with his coffee. And then I sit down and do some journaling and some reading and then I get to making myself a matcha with some cinnamon and ground ginger and then I add some cashew milk on top. Yum! Then I do my skincare and my LED mask and then some ice rolling. Just love doing the longest skincare routine in the morning. Then I love to open all the blinds in the house and get all the sunlight I can and make the bed, of course, to keep the house tidy and looking its best. Then it's time to make some breakfast. I've been loving these oats lately. Well, you probably get the idea there. Actually, her morning routine is a lot like mine. Um, you know, I stumble out of the out of uh, my room and I'm like uh, just uh, barely awake and my kids try to talk to me and say, don't, don't talk to me until I have my aloe shot and greens and do my skincare routine with the ice roller, whatever that is. Uh, no, actually that doesn't happen, but, but at least the part where she makes coffee, I can relate to that. The rest of it, not so much, but uh, as the BuzzFeed piece alluded to, not everyone is on board with the stay-at-home girlfriends. Uh, as is always the case with a TikTok trend, there has arisen a competing trend of videos explaining why the other trend is deeply problematic. And critics are primarily concerned that stay-at-home girlfriends are living a terribly unfeminist life, having deprived themselves of the empowerment and glamour of the cubicle in favor of living under the misogynistic tyranny of a boyfriend who provides for their every need. According to these critics, you know, a woman is, is supposed to put on a pantsuit and go to work and climb the corporate ladder, a life that is so famously liberating and enriching to the soul. She's certainly not meant to be at home. Meanwhile, other critics have decided that it is, of course, racist to be a stay-at-home girlfriend. Here's user Fazioli Breadstick explaining this logic. This just reminded me of a thread I saw on Twitter the other day. You can pause to read, but this is from the Cindy Noir. I've already made multiple videos about Greek life, but you should definitely pause and read her take on it. Once again, I just want to reiterate that it's not my business or anybody else's for that matter, what you choose to do, whether you work or don't work. And let me be very clear that when I'm talking about the stay-at-home girlfriend trend, I'm not talking about how other cultures divide labor in the household. Rather, I am talking about the very recent cultural phenomenon in which white women in particular romanticize the idea of opting out of labor that is otherwise delegated to lower income people and people of color. What do videos like these tell you about A, who gets to rest, B, who deserves rest, and C, how do you get rest? I find it interesting that in these videos, nobody is calling these women lazy or gold diggers. In fact, most of them are concerned that they're being taken advantage of. When you look at most social movements and political movements, upper white middle class women are nowhere to be found. If they wanted to create meaningful social change, they could. They choose not to because it goes against their class interests. There, my drop by. Right. No one is calling these women lazy or gold diggers, except for all the thousands of people who are calling them exactly that. This is very common on the left. They'll often declare, you know, when white people do fill in the blank, nobody criticizes them for it. Yet in reality, everyone criticizes them for it, including the person claiming they're not being criticized for it. Indeed, the truth is the other way around, usually. If it was primarily black women making a stay-at-home girlfriend videos, then you wouldn't be allowed to criticize it. But in this case, Miss Breadstick seems to be arguing that because so many racial minorities are not able to opt out of the labor force, white women shouldn't opt out either. They must be allies. They must make their lifestyle decisions based on what other people are doing. They're not allowed to be happy because that would be unfair to all of the racial minorities who Miss Breadstick assumes are not happy. This is allyship. And here, allyship specifically means, apparently, getting a job in the service industry even if you don't need it or want it which only means that you'll be taking a position away from someone, potentially a racial minority, who does need it and want it. So I don't think that Miss Breadstick has thought this all the way through. But these criticisms are all, you know, of course, extremely stupid. It may be unfeminist to become a stay-at-home girlfriend, but there's nothing wrong with being unfeminist. On the contrary, that's the lane that any woman should want to be in, considering that feminists are also resentful and miserable. If, if you don't know which way you want to go in life, 
uh, and you're a woman, you, you could do worse than simply just looking at whatever feminists are doing and heading in the exact opposite direction. It's also obviously not racist to live your own life how you want to live it. You're not morally required to conduct a racial inventory before making every decision in your life. And even if you did conduct the inventory, there, there's no point to it because according to the left, it's racist for a white person to do things that black people aren't doing, but it's also racist to do things that they are doing. So there's no sense in playing a game that you can't win. Uh, and, and that's why all these uh, uh, criticisms are ridiculous. But here's a criticism of the stay-at-home girlfriend trend that is not ridiculous. The real problem with the stay-at-home girlfriend lifestyle is not the stay-at-home part. It's the girlfriend part. The problem, of course, is that these women aren't married. That's the issue. What this trend actually represents is a, is a broader trend uh, in a continued attempt by many people in our culture to figure out a way to enjoy the benefits of marriage without actually getting married. So many young people and young couples, they seek to take on the form of a married relationship, mimic it, but without the substance of the marriage. They're playing house. They're playing pretend. And that's where this trend truly becomes, to use the left's favorite term, problematic. That's what you actually see in that video. It is, it is a, a woman who's just like, it's, it's house. You're playing house. It is a more sophisticated game of house. The problems here are many, but we will um, briefly focus on just one. You know, both the stay-at-home girlfriend and the working boyfriend have made themselves incredibly vulnerable here. And they've set themselves up for a nearly inevitable and inevitably messy and heartbreaking split. Because the girl is relying on the guy entirely to subsidize her lifestyle, relying on him to bring home the bacon and bring home everything else too. And yet the one thing she doesn't have from him, the one thing he's not providing, even if she seems to have everything else, is any sort of meaningful commitment. She is leaning on him completely, but he can just step to the side at any moment and send her crashing to the floor. He hasn't even promised not to do that. He hasn't so much as promised not to step to the side. Indeed, by not marrying her, he has promised that eventually he will abandon. Because that's the whole reason why you refuse to get married to someone is because you want to leave your you want to leave that escape hatch in place. A refusal to commit is a commitment of its own. You are committing to breaking up down the line eventually. And when that day comes, you know, the, the breakup of this non-committed, effectively meaningless relationship will be very messy and difficult, much more messy and difficult than a breakup between boyfriend and girlfriend ought to be. Because normally dumping your girlfriend should require no more than one awkward conversation, and that's it. You go your separate ways, and you never have to speak to each other again if you don't want to. That's the way it should go. If you're just dating someone, that's the whole point of dating. That's one of the things that's supposed to separate it from marriage is that you're not in really entangled in any way. You just, you're living your own lives. You're dating. And if you want to live one life together, that's why you get married. And the great thing is that if you're, not, if you're living separate lives and then you decide that, okay, we're not going to get married. This isn't going to work out. Just go your separate ways. That's it. You'll be sad about it for a while, but you'll get over it. Once you've added houses and mortgages into the mix... Then when, you, when you've taken on many of the obligations and shared roles of a marriage, even though you aren't married, you end up with a breakup that feels and looks an awful lot like a divorce. So you never had the benefit of the marriage, but you still get the crap storm of the divorce. It's the worst of all worlds. And then the guy in this arrangement is, no be is in no better shape. He's working every day and providing for a woman who has made no commitment to him. He has taken on a dependent and yet still has no wife. He is a man with no wife, no children, no marriage, no family, and yet still has a dependent that he's taking care of every day. You know, there's that crass expression often used to describe a man with a living girlfriend. They say, well, you know, he's getting the milk for free, so why buy the cow? But the truth is that he's the cow in this scenario. He's being used by a woman who, again, has made no promises to him, no commitment, no oath of fealty. She could be spending part of her ample free time every day in bed with some other guy she met at the gym or whatever, and she wouldn't even be violating any vow by doing so because no vow was ever made. The guy can't even say, you broke your promise. I never promised anything to you. Not officially. We couldn't even call it an, an affair 
because they aren't married, so it's not an affair. She would be cheating, yes, but cheating what? An ambiguous relationship where no official promises or commitments have ever been made? So what? This is why, if you want to enjoy a relationship that looks and acts like a marriage, there is no substitute for actually getting married. No matter how desperately our culture looks for a substitute, it's just not there. And that is why, even after defending these stay-at-home girlfriends from some of their especially stupid critics, I must still say that these stay-at-home girlfriends are unfortunately canceled. Although they could just graduate to being stay-at-home wives and mothers, and then that would be a whole other story entirely. And that'll do it for this portion of the show as we move over to the members block. Hope to see you there. If not, talk to you tomorrow. Godspeed.